Hi, today's scripture reading is from Acts 12, verses 1 through 5 in the CSB translation. If you have a Bible or device, I'd encourage you to turn there. While you're getting there, my name is Victoria Verdick. My family and I have been attending Crosspoint for almost two years and have been covenant members since January of 2023. I have also been attending Hype for about two years and serving Sun Chasers. Let's hear God's word. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with the sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Victoria. Good morning. For those who may not know me, my name is Kent. I'm the youth and college pastor here. If you have a Bible with you, please get to uh, that passage in Acts chapter 12. To start off our sermon this morning, I want to ask a question. Uh, What comes to mind when I say the word trial? What comes to mind? Maybe think of a difficult situation in life and dealing with maybe a sickness, maybe you're grieving over a loss, conflict with somebody else. Maybe when I say the word trial, do you picture a courtroom setting um, and in that uh, phrase you, you are thinking of a judge, jurors, and a defendant and uh, someone accusing the defendant. Maybe in your mind you're, you might be like me and you're uh, sports-minded a little bit more. When you hear the word trial, you might think of the phrase time trial. There are many other examples of where you can maybe use the word trial in reference to something else. But my question is, is how can one word be used for so many different situations in life? You know, what do all these situation settings have in common? You know, if we look closer at the word trial, we see that it all involve all the situations that we I listed as examples involved testing. You know, if you're a runner, for those who maybe coach track in here or maybe participate in track and field, if you're a runner, um, you go to practice, you have time trials before the race to test your ability so you know where you are in relation to the rest of the competition. If you're in a courtroom trial, the jury is testing the evidence to find out the truth of who is guilty and who is innocent. If you are experiencing a trial, which is a difficult situation in life, perhaps you're being tested to see if your faith and trust are in God or in something or someone else. Scripture also talks about trials as tests. James 1, uh, verses 2 through 3 says this, Consider a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So here we see this correlation between trials and testing. In our passage today, we're going to see the church in Jerusalem experience various trials. And so the last, just to kind of put this in perspective of what 
where we're at in Acts. Last few Sundays, we talked about how the church started in Jerusalem and then moved to outer regions of Judea and Samaria. And then we started briefly talking about how the church was moving to the beginning of the ends of the earth. They were, it was going outside of the region, and the word was being proclaimed, and people were coming to know Jesus. In our passage today, we see the writer Luke shift the focus back to the Jerusalem church for just a moment. And in Acts 12, uh, we're going to see the Jerusalem church going through some trials. So, if you haven't already, please meet me in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. I'm going to start reading from verse 1. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. And we saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter too. And during the festival, during the festival of the unleavened bread, after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Let's just pause here for a moment to kind of see how Luke is setting the scene for this story, and so we can understand what's happening here. So in verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to a, a person named King Herod. Now this King Herod is different than the Herod's previously mentioned uh, in the Gospels and in other places that we see in the Bible. Herod is just what would be considered a, a dynastic name that denotes a line of rulers from the same family uh, who ruled uh, under the authority of Rome, but they ruled this general area for um, some time. The king's actual name is Agrippa I. And it was Agrippa I's uh, uncle who was ruling during the time Jesus was crucified. Okay, so we see his uncle ruling there, and then what we also see taking place is that uh, Agrippa's uncle at that point in time wanted to please the Jewish leaders in allowing the crucifixion of Jesus, and here we also see the nephew, Agrippa I, seeking to please the Jewish leaders by persecuting the church, starting with James. Now, this James is different than the James that we'll read later on, who is the brother of Jesus, who wrote the book of James. This James is the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, who were part of the original 12 disciples. So, Herod, after seeing that his actions of executing James um, and, and killing him pleased the Jewish leaders, we see that he arrests Peter, the leader of the Jerusalem church at that time. And Luke adds this detail in here that's really easy to miss. Luke adds that all this takes place during the festival of unleavened bread, which is the Passover. It's, that it's one and the same. The Passover, what happened in this huge festival would take place after the Passover. And this is significant because it means that there is going to be an increase of people in the city. And this makes sense if King Herod wants to put on a spectacle, wants to be uh, liked and gain favor from the Jewish leaders. This makes sense that Herod would want to kill Peter the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem, in front of a large crowd of Jewish leaders, just like his uncle Herod did, along with Pilate, allowed the Jews to kill Jesus after the Passover during that same festival 13 years prior to the story we're studying today. And even though we see this situation being dark, it doesn't look good for Peter, in verse 5, we read that the church in Jerusalem 
is seeking God in prayer during this trial, this trial for the church and this trial for Peter. This practice of praying in the early church is something that we've seen over and over again as we've studied the book of Acts. We can see that the early believers were grounded in their faith and in their trust in God because they prayed. They prayed during stressful times. They prayed during times of rejoicing. And here specifically, they prayed and they stayed calm and they trusted God with the results. So let's keep reading and see how God responds to their prayers. Pick up back with me. Verse 6 of Acts 12, verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. The chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. And after they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. Now let's pause here again as we just examine this uh, miraculous event in Scripture. In these few verses, we see something pretty remarkable, don't we? And I think it's safe to say uh, that God is at work in releasing Peter from prison, helping him escape execution. I think we see uh, God at work in three ways in these verses. The first way we see God at work in these specific verses is the fact that Peter is sleeping. Don't miss this detail. It was the night before his execution would have taken place. His last night on earth. He was between two soldiers and he was sleeping. He wasn't fretting. He wasn't worried. He wasn't crying. He was sleeping. I don't know about you, but I, I could maybe understand a little bit more if, it was, if I knew I was going to die the next morning and I'm chained between two soldiers in a jail cell. I don't know if I could sleep. One, I don't know if it's that comfortable to sleep. Two, I, there would be some anxiousness. We see God at work in changing Peter's heart to trust him because he was sleeping. Peter was able to sleep because in such a stressful situation, he had trust and faith in God. God had changed Peter's heart to trust him instead of being afraid of the situation. Peter knows, he has prior experience that God has saved him from a similar, similar situation previously, but he also has trust in God if he is executed in the morning, knowing that he would be met by his Lord and Savior face to face. And so we see God at work in Peter's heart and allowing him to rest, forming in him this attitude of, God, I'm going to rest in you spiritually, and then allows him to rest physically. And then it was so much so, Peter was in such a deep sleep that when the angel showed up, the light that it attributed with the angel's arrival did not wake him up, but rather the angel had to strike him, had to hit his side to wake him up, because Peter was resting that well. 
to you. The second way we see God at work is the angel. The angel leads, past, uh, leads Peter past the guards. Peter is automatically unchained from the two guards, the two soldiers sitting next to him, who are also sleeping. Then they pass by the two more guards that are on duty, standing on guard, awake in front of them. And they pass them as if the guards are just like statues. Like they're not even able to see the angel or Peter pass by. You know, we see Peter and angel not having to fight the guards. You know, that's part of Peter's past, you know, trying to fight and react. But we see here that he allows, God allows Peter and the angel just to pass by. They don't even have to fight. They're not trying to, you know, sneak by. You're not trying to, not even trying to tippy-toe past the guards. No, they, they get up, he gets dressed, and they walk. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty remarkable. In a miraculous way, we see God supernaturally allowing Peter and the angel to walk right past both sets of guards. And the last detail that I want to point out that I think we see God at work miraculously in this um, few verses here is that the iron gate opened by itself. Let that not go unnoticed. The final act we see in these verses is that the iron gate opens by itself. This gate was the final barrier for prisoners to get through before entering the city streets. And this was no simple gate. It was meant to keep prisoners inside. It was meant to keep them from getting outside. And if we dig deeper for a moment, we see in the original Greek that the text says this. After passing the guards, they arrived at the gate the iron one, the one leading to the city. The repetition of the use of the article shows that this gate is different than all the other gates in the prison. This one was the hardest to move and the most difficult to get through. One commentary writes, this final barrier was impressive. It was made of iron and thus very heavy and was locked with a massive bolt so that a number of men were required to open it. This massive gate opened of itself and let Peter and the angel out and then, of course, closed just as automatically. Pretty remarkable, pretty miraculous, if I had to say the least. And in these three ways, we see God at work, God moving supernaturally in these verses as a response to the prayers of the Jerusalem church. Let's keep reading and see what happens next after Peter continues his journey. So we're back up in verse 11. Verse 11 of Acts 12. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp, from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. They said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he inter interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. All right, let's pause here before finishing 
chapter 12. Here we see Peter went to the house where many were praying for him. In verse 5, and don't miss these details. This is pretty, uh, pretty cool stuff if you dig a little bit deeper. In the midst of a time of persecution where James had just died, Peter was arrested and thrown into prison. A servant girl named Rhoda comes to the door when it is knocking. When, when someone is knocking at the door, after all this is happening, there's believers gathered in this house, this place, and the servant girl goes to the door. I cannot imagine what thoughts were going through that servant girl's mind knowing all this is happening and someone that they probably weren't expecting comes knocking at the door. And what, what do we see from this servant girl named Rhoda? She comes to the door and upon recognizing Peter's voice, believes that God had answered the prayers that the church had prayed and she's so overjoyed that she left Peter standing outside in the danger. In danger of being caught by other people. In danger of being seen outside the prison. And she goes and shares the news with the others in the house. And this servant girl, man, you want to talk about having faith that God had answered prayers? While the rest of the people sat in unbelief. I can't imagine what she felt when she reported and others basically said, you're crazy. And said, no, you're, you're wrong. And here in this setting, in this picture, we see very, dare I say, comical and ironic turn of events. Warren Wearsby comments that God had gotten Peter out of prison. A highly secured prison. But yet Peter can't get into a prayer meeting. It is a twist of events. And after Peter has to continue knocking, they finally let him in the house, and Peter shares how God had brought him out of prison and instructs the people there to share the news with James, different James than the one that was executed, obviously. This James is now the half-brother of Jesus that they're addressing. And after this, Peter leaves, and we're not, to and we're not told where he goes. In fact, after this chapter, Peter leaves the scene of Acts. And the only references to Peter in Scripture are a few moments from Paul and then also the letters that Peter sends to believers. We see it just like that. Peter is gone from the scene in Jerusalem. He goes elsewhere and continues doing ministry. Now the following morning in verses 18-19, we see that Herod was not very happy to say the least that Peter had escaped prison. You think he would have learned his lesson you know, his uncle who highly secured a tomb, you know, and Jesus res resurrected and got out of the tomb and caused a ruckus and, you know, not a ruckus in a bad way, but in a good way of transforming people's lives and, and changing the culture and changing how society viewed, you know, how to r live rightly. Peter had already escaped from prison once. You think Herod would have looked at history and, and took a few notes but he didn't, and now he's upset, to say the least, so upset that he has the guards killed, those guards who are guarding Peter. And here we see that it was indeed Herod's intent to kill Peter. In Roman society, if a guard was standing still, uh, if a guard was over somebody who was supposed to be executed and they got away, it was the guard's life that was taken. And so here we see 
um, that Herod did intend to execute Peter, and that he is not happy, to say the least. So, let's finish up reading 12, because we're going to learn a little bit more about Herod in the last five verses. So, if you would pick Acts 12 back up with me in verse 20. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's a voice of a god and not of man. Not once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. And after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. Okay, in the end of chapter 12, Luke changes the scene a couple different times. And so what we're going to do is hopefully the map will be helpful to understand what's going on here. Okay, so we have Jerusalem here, and that's where the church in Acts 12 uh, is being talked about. And Herod, after Peter escapes, goes all the way to Caesarea. Probably doesn't want to do anything with Jerusalem anymore. He's probably a little embarrassed. And there's conflict. There's conflict with people from Tyre and Sidon. And um, the logical question to ask is, what is the conflict? When I read this the first time, I, I was just like, why? that seems really random. Why, Herod, are you upset at these people who are outside of um, your jurisdiction, the, outside of the, the reign? And I, I think we can infer that the famine that is mentioned at the end of Acts 11 was so severe that it had reached beyond Judean countries. It reached the cities of Tyre and Sidon. They were affected by it. And we can kind of see this in verse 20 because it says that Herod was supplying those two cities with food. Apparently, Tyre and Sidon weren't holding up their end of the deal that Herod had with them. And ensues conflict. An attempt to make peace. People representing those two cities come before Herod. And they talk with some of Herod's officials. And it seems like they've worked out a deal. And Herod... Take, takes this opportunity to address these people. And while he's talking and, and addressing them, uh, the people of these two cities begin shouting, it's a voice of a God and not of man. Whether they were sincere or saying it to flatter Herod, we don't know. But what we do see is Herod takes credit. He takes that compliment. He takes what is said, and it goes straight to his head. He doesn't give glory to God, and he gets struck down by an angel. He received, when faced with conflict, Herod turns to himself instead of glorifying God, being struck down by an angel. And this is quite ironic when you see the whole chapter and, and read that full story uh, because of the fact that uh, earlier we saw an angel having to strike Peter to wake him up because Peter trusted in God in his trial and his time of difficulty, while Herod was struck by an angel in judgment because he trusted himself instead of glorifying God in his time of difficulty and trial. And as a result, as we read of Herod Agrippa, the first death, the gospel continues to spread. The word continues to go out 
And at the end, we see Barnabas and Saul, they finish their relief mission to the believers in Jerusalem who've struggled with the famine. Now, there's a lot that's happening in this passage. A lot of scene changes, a lot of movement. Now, I, but through everything, through all the changes, through all the different storylines, I think we see a main theme, and that theme is seeking God in the trial. Seeking God in the trial. From our passage, I think we see five characteristics of someone who is seeking God in the midst of a trial. Number one, a person who is seeking God in the trial trusts God. We see this as the Jerusalem church was praying. And this wasn't just your routine prayers of pattern, but verse 5 says that they were fervently praying. There was passion in their prayers. In their prayers. They took it seriously. This wasn't just for formality's sake of, I realize it's a hard situation, I should pray, and then I'm going to tough it out whatever happens. That, I don't see that. I, I, the church had seen God at work in many miraculous ways leading up to this point, and they realized without God, they can do nothing on their own. And even though the situation seems dark and bleak, they know that God is the one in control. God has the power to work in mighty ways. They are dependent upon the Lord. They trust and have faith that God will be at work. And this is shown through the fact that the church prays. And prayer is the most practical way you and I can live out our faith and trust in God. The act of praying, the fact that you pray or I pray, shows that we are not dependent on us, but rather we pray because we see our need for God. This means the opposite is true. The act of not praying is actually a sign of practical atheism. Because in that moment, we're not believing rightly about who God is. We think we can do it on our own, that we don't need God's help. And so therefore, the person who trusts in God shows that they're seeking God in this trial by praying. The one who doesn't pray shows that they're trusting in themselves to get through the trial or the difficulty. Someone who is seeking God in the trial, number two, rests in God's sovereignty. We saw this with Peter as he is asleep uh, in, in the night before his execution. He is physically and spiritually at rest. He can rest knowing that whatever happens to him, God is sovereign over it. Whether death or life, God is sovereign. This is a great reminder for us that in our trial, you know, God's plan might not be what we want, but it's what God has planned to happen for His glory. And sometimes I think we can think that, oh, God wants glory. That's kind of selfish of God. Like, why would that, like, why would I trust and follow God that only wants to glorify Himself? And God wanting glory is not selfish. He wants to be glorified so more people can see His power and majesty so that they come to know Him and know His love for them in a personal relationship through believing in Jesus. And if our mindset is trusting and resting in God's sovereignty and everything that happens to us, good or bad, we can rest knowing that He's in control and that anything that happens will be used for 
His glory. Third thing we see, if uh, a characteristic of someone who trusts God in the trial, we see that they implement God's word. We see this when the angel gave Peter commands and Peter obeyed. And this is a great reminder that while we are in a trial, we need to remember God's word, which first means we need to know God's word. We need to understand and have a uh, uh, reality that God's word is something that we intake on a daily basis to know it. We need to remind ourselves of the truths about who God is, how he loves us, so that we can walk faithfully through a trial, that we can be a witness for Jesus to others. Because even in our trials, we have the opportunity to show Jesus by how we react to various situations in life. How we act and react can be a testimony in and of itself of the work of the gospel in our lives. And that's through implementing God's word in the midst of a trial. Number four, characteristic of someone who seeks God in trial anticipates God's answer. We see this in Rhoda, the servant girl who believed that it was Peter knocking on the door. Apparently, unbelief in God's power had crept into the other believers in the house, but Rhoda had faith and was anticipating God to answer prayers that people were praying. Something happened, and she was expectantly waiting and sought and believed. This is a great reminder again for us when we are in a trial. Do we really believe that God is at work? Are we being watchful for God's response to our prayers? Do we say, you know, we pray, it's formality. I know I should, so I do. I don't really expect anything to change. Are we aware of how God has already worked in our trial? And again, it may or may not be how we want but do we see where God is working? And are we anticipating God to answer our prayers? That answer could be yes, no, or later and have to wait. Number five, characteristic of someone who's seeking God in trial. They lift up praises to God. Notice in verse 17, Peter gives all glory to God. He says he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Peter gives credit to God, as he should have. It's kind of a miraculous event that happened. For Peter to take any sort of credit from that would just have been uh, uh, utterly blasphemous. To, to think of uh, an angel doing... Uh, helping Peter escape and God opening those doors and breaking the chains, for him to take any credit of that is just crazy to think of. So yes, in fact, Peter gave glory to God as he should have. Peter had nothing to do with his escape. In fact, Peter thought it was a dream until he had hit the, the street of the city. So this is another good reminder. When you're on the other side of a trial, do you give credit where credit is due? Or you and I, like Herod, and we, we sometimes like to take credit for ourselves. Instead of lifting up praise to God, we, we point downward to ourselves when we get through a trial that it was me who did it. It was by my willpower 
that I got through that? Or do we, do we praise God? Do we share how God grew us and helped us? And are we honest and vulnerable with others and how we were really struggling, but God helped us. God brought us through. So whenever you're going through trial, think through the word trial, T-R-I-A-L. Trust in God. Rest in God's sovereignty. Implement God's word. Anticipate God's answer. And you lift up praises to God. To close, I want to bring us back to the purpose of a trial that we talked about in the beginning of the sermon. If trials are tests, the question I have is, what are they testing? They're testing to see whom or what your faith and trust is in. Trials are tests that reveal ultimately where our desires are, where our hearts are at. Are my desires gain, to, to gain earthly things? Or are my desires ultimately to show uh, Jesus, to know and to be with Jesus Christ? And it's not just like life big crises that are trials. Trials come in different sizes, big and small. As much as it's true that a diagnosis of an illness, job loss, or persecution because of your faith in Jesus uh, can, can be a test where you see your faith and, and trust and see where that's at, if it's in you or, or if it's in God. The same is also true when you have a small trial, like, let's say, parents, your child's misbehaving. They're not doing what you tell them to do. Your kids are fighting. Um, maybe it's you're having conflict between spouses. Finances are tight. When we want is not given to us. Any of those moments can also test to see where your trust and faith really lie. Where it's actually at. And so what I'm saying is that there are going to be multiple opportunities in your everyday life where you experience trials or tests. Multiple opportunities. And those trials and tests are there to expose who you're trusting in. Is it, do I trust in God in this situation, small or big? Or am I really trusting in myself? Am I more worried about what I look like in this situation? Or am I worried about glorifying God? There's always going to be that tug and pull battle any of these trials and tests that we experience in our daily lives. And so when we recognize that we're going through a trial, that we need to remind ourselves the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's crucifixion, I know that I am loved and accepted by God. So that when I sin, when I fail to trust and place my faith in God and, and my desire for Him is less than my desire for something in the world, I know that I can run to God knowing that I have forgiveness of my sins and that I don't have to go through that on my own. I know that I'm loved and accepted by God because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's also because of the cross that I know that I am more loved than I can imagine as God in flesh died for my sins, that anything that happens in my life is not God's condemnation that was dealt with on the cross, but rather what happens is for the purpose of conforming me to the person of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God. So I don't have to worry of like, man, I feel like I'm being condemned. No, like that was taken 
upon Jesus on the cross. What is happening right now, God is sovereign. There's a purpose, and it's to grow you, to conform you to the person of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So more people can see that, know Jesus, know God's plan and love for the world, to draw more people to him. Because of Christ's resurrection, I can trust in God because he has the power to work all things for his glory. I don't have to fear if sin and evil will overcome it because I know I have a Savior who defeated sin and defeated death. Jesus is with me as a believer and he helps me in my time of need. This is good news. The gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection is good news. I have grace and I have the power to overcome any trial that comes my way. We need to remind ourselves of this when we go through trials, when we go through tests in our everyday lives. Now, I can't think of a better way to remind us of these truths in the gospel than communion. Today, being first Sunday of the month, uh, is Communion Sunday. Communion is, is a time in taking the juice and the bread publicly, and that symbol, symbolizes Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Now, when a person takes communion, they are saying they identify as part of the body of Christ. When a person takes communion, they're saying not only to others around them, but also as a witness to God that I identify with, his, with, I identify with Christ, with his blood and body as my atonement for my sins. That I need a Savior, that I am a sinner, that I need grace every single day. And this is a great reminder of Christ's sacrifice and the fact that we need His grace every single day. Because this is true, we ask that only people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior partake in communion this morning. If you haven't done so, we don't want people to falsely uh, identifying with Jesus if they haven't done so in their heart. We want people who have taken that step of faith to partake in communion with us this morning as a family, as a body of believers. So take the next couple moments and pray as the elements are being passed around. Be honest before God. Pray and see um, where we can just be reminded again of his love and goodness for us in our lives. And at the end, we'll take the elements together. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the juice. God, thank you for these moments where we get to pause, where we get to remember your sacrifice for us. God, that we get to remember your grace that we have through Jesus. That we get to remember the love that you have shown us and that you continue to show us. That you continue to show us. So God, I pray that you would continue to change our hearts to ones that run to you in 
trials, run to you when we're being tested, run to you in tough situations. God, help us to trust you, to rely on you, and just to continue to glorify you in our lives. We love you and serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I just want to close with a couple verses from Romans 8 as some encouragement. Romans 8.35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That is written, because of you we were put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let that be an encouragement to you, and I pray that you would go and share that, be a witness to that as you go out um, today and then throughout the rest of your week.